0: So my hope for this talk is that I won't make it so long that we won't have a little bit of time for some exchange and uh, Q and A conversation at the end, because actually that's my very favorite way of teaching. And uh, in this talk, we will just take a little tour um, and then just share some of my experience of practice and you know, what I really love that just would love to share with you. And I want to begin by just acknowledging um, our ancestors, you know, the, the teachers and the cultures that kindly and generously shared their heart practices and wisdom practices with us over the many centuries, and that, who continue to inspire and motivate us. Certainly, I feel that. And, um, and I feel that when I practice, I'm connecting with them uh, as students, and then later as teachers, uh, just as we are. And, uh, and it's just a kind of, it brings a kind of confidence and it's an antidote to doubt, I feel, to connect with those who have come before us. After all, our ancestors are the cause and condition for our life. And so, of course, we also honor our particular personal ancestors, as well as our dharma ancestors. And when we honor our ancestors, it's a way, also for me, it's kind of like going for refuge. Like we're going for refuge in the Buddha, in our loving awareness, in our capacity for awareness, in that which dwells in the heart of all of all beings, of all human beings. And as we directly experience this awareness and we practice together and it grows and grows, we can really begin to just feel um, the power of that refuge in our ancestors of Buddha and all the practitioners before and in the loving awareness that is our birthright, that is our, sometimes said, our true nature. And then we have our Sangha, and that is where what James was talking about, that ceaselessly responsive compassion, you know, excuse me, in the Dharma, we feel the power and activity of compassion in the teachings, in the way that our practice unfolds, in the way that the universe exists in such a lawful fashion, and the way that we can learn about how this all works together. And the Dharma that we're practicing here, the structure that we use for our meditation instructions um, at Spirit Rock is usually the four foundations of mindfulness, which we began with yesterday. And we started with um, the mindfulness of the body and the breath in the body and uh, establishing that. And that's a lifelong encouragement for us to stay with the body and be, inhabit our own bodies Um, and then the second foundation is we start to look at our just visceral reactivity to experience to the things that are perceived in ways that are deeply conditioned by the human mind they're not our fault we see everything as pleasant or unpleasant or neither and that is the way we're wired it's not a mistake but we become aware of it so that we can start to see oh i react to that which is pleasant this way oh i react to that which is unpleasant this way usually from trying to withdraw or get aggressive with it pleasant i enjoy it or sometimes want more of it the neutral that's can be boring and i forget that the neutral moment is actually a moment of nothing much happening where i can open to equanimity is a doorway to serenity. In fact, very peaceful uh, when we can be with it, very peaceful. Yeah. And then the third foundation is um, based on this kind of visceral gut reactivity. We produce lots of thoughts and emotions and um, perceptions and we act on them and we make our life out of them. And that's, um, that's kind of how it works. Luckily, there's a fourth foundation, which is the whole field of transformation. And that's where we start to see our repeating patterns of mind and become aware of them. And we learn all the methods um, that we learn in our practice here and, uh, and wherever we practice, we learn how to reverse the difficult patterns and how to incline mind and the heart toward that which is loving and that which is bright and that which gladdens our minds and our lives. So this is how we widen and deepen the field of awareness um, by sort of expanding to include more and more of experience. The wonderful um, psychiatrist Dan Siegel calls it enlarging our window of tolerance, the whole area in which we can actually receive and process experience. And so much of the practice is about just opening that window, making it a little bigger. um, And this is our Dharma. And then we have the Sangha, our support of each other. And I want to tell you a story. Um, I actually printed it out. It's a story that fascinated me. I found this story. Some of you might have seen it. It was um, a Japanese aquarium asking people to send videos of themselves talking gently uh, because the eels in the aquarium were getting afraid. They were forgetting about humans. And these eels, I don't know if any of you have ever dived, but there's a kind of eel called grass eel, and they poke their heads up in the sand and kind of wave in the water, which is how they got their name of grass eels. And usually when they poke their heads out of the sand in the aquarium, they see lots and lots of human eyes looking at them and they're not bothered. They've gotten used to the humans and they're not bothered by them, but they're very sensitive creatures. And now in the absence of humans, they like many, many animals are experiencing a completely um, different world. And the aquarium, they're not, when the keepers come by, they're hiding. They're going back under the sand. And the aquarium can't really gauge how healthy they are or what they might need. Um, They're forgetting about humans. So they made an urgent request. They said, could you please show your face to our garden eels from home where everybody was confined? And then this happened at the beginning of May this month. They named it a face viewing festival and they got people. They set up tablets and they asked people to connect with their devices, their iPhones or their iPads um, using FaceTime. And then once the video calls started, they asked people to wave and show their faces and speak gently to these very very sensitive eels now there was a great response to this and why am i telling you about this because i feel like we all need sangha we need each other and in this time of isolation for many of us even if we're with family or partners or roommates we can still feel so isolated from our usual supports and things that we get to do when we come into retreat, it's it's um it can feel also isolating. And that's why I encourage everybody to keep the gallery view from time to time. I'm gonna do it myself, to keep the gallery view so we can look at each other and remind each other that we're here, we're here together. And yeah, just like the eels, we can get a little bit scared. What's it gonna be like when we're all actually out in the world again, which we will be someday. Um, and I think, James, you're going to show that little video, um, I hope, of the Belfast, the COVID. Are you going to do that? Okay, then I'll let, I'll let you do that. Um, it's just another way of understanding what we're doing when we shelter at home, that we're actually protecting each other and keeping each other safe, and that that is an expression of of kindness and caring for each other and with each other. So this um, opening the window of tolerance, this enlarging the field of awareness of what we are able to encounter in our awareness, it sounds, when I talk about it, it just all sounds good. It sounds healthy and it sounds even kind of beautiful. But when we open that window, everything can come in. And everything that comes in, as you already know, on the second day of retreat, even if it's your very first retreat, you've already seen that what can come in is not always easy to be with. I read an article recently about women who surf these giant waves at Mavericks and at Jaws on Maui. It's terrifying, and it's amazing if you've ever watched videos or seen it in person, Uh, what the daring and um, crazy courage that these folks have in doing this. And that actually encourage you to look at it when you have a chance. Um, But I feel like we're all kind of surfing these waves and some of them may be very gentle, so we feel the delight of splashing in the surf. the waves of experience that we're encountering as we sit and walk and nourish ourselves in all the different ways that we are in this retreat and then do our lives in the times that we're not together. But some of the waves are really big and it can feel like, it can feel dangerous and scary to be with them. And what happens when we practice over time is that we begin to see that none of this is a mistake, that we develop a kind of um, wordless sense of something that we're part of that is bigger than just our encapsulated thought world, our encapsulated self, and that feeling of something bigger even if it's something that feels scary, or threatening to us, it's a very humbling feeling. And that humbleness or that humility is what actually opens us to receive experience fully. Uh, I was once sitting with my Korean teacher, we were on a pilgrimage to Zen temples in Korea, and A friend of his, we were at, uh, I think it was a lunch or something, all of us together, and there was a friend of his there who said something, and we got into kind of an argument. And she said to me, and this is, of course, a Zen, many of you might have heard this. It's a little Zen story. She said, oh, your cup is so full that there's no room to pour anything else into it which of course was not a compliment. But when we're so full with our own ideas about everything, we aren't able to take that backward step into receptivity. So we're here to widen and deepen the field of our awareness to allow our lives to unfold. And more and more and more, as we practice, we begin to trust that everything that appears is actually is our practice. That there's nothing that deserves to be sort of shoved aside. Oh, that's not Dharmic. That's not really my practice. Um, Because actually anything that we shove aside like that and don't include in our field of awareness, those things actually have more power over us for the simple reason that we're not aware of them. And so we begin to see more and more that everything is our path. Even the things that we don't think should be or we don't think we should be doing, maybe those things especially are part of our path because they give us the chance to learn and practice with the parts of ourselves that we might prefer not to cherish and not to welcome into into this field of awareness. And when we are allowing ourselves to receive and to open our hearts, there is a a felt sense of expansion of increasing clarity and of love. And the determination, the intention that we hold to do this practice and to keep doing it, it's what builds what James was talking about. I think it was the secret sauce or the special ingredient that you said, James, which was um, the continuity. You know, that's how we develop. I mean, to develop that continuity, we have to know why we 're doing this in the first place, and we have to be somewhat inspired at least by our reason for doing this and that 's why we do this um, all of us I think to help with our own suffering that 's a very authentic reason to come to this uh, to come to this path, and we also do it because we understand somebody gave voice to it in um, our practice group meeting and said, you know, the more, the better I know myself, the better able I am to be with others. The better I know myself and can accept myself, the more accepting and friendly and yes, loving I feel toward those I meet. And we hear these teachings of anatta, of non-self, and the brain just goes tilt like... You know, it doesn't, it's like that does not compute and then wonder and think about it and what does this mean? But actually, it just means um, that defining ourselves so narrowly in terms of our past conditioning and our beliefs about what we can and can't do in this life, that defining ourselves so narrowly like that is actually not our true situation of who we are and the true situation of who we are is we use the word emptiness sometimes especially in Mahayana in later Buddhism but the the true feeling of what we are and who we are is not defined by um, actual boundaries or limitations even though I know I certainly have spent a lot of my life limiting myself by my beliefs. That is not the self. And that is what we mean when we say that self does not exist. That self that we define um, is our creation. It's created from the causes and conditions of our life. But our actual experience of being has no boundary and no limitation. So I want to tell you a story. This is a kind of Zen story. And it's kind of long, and I'm, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to refer to it because I tend to uh, get the sequence of stories mixed up and then it's not as good of a story. Uh, but this is a story from the the ninth to tenth century, the Tang dynasty in China, which was the golden age of Chan or Zen. And it's a story about a teacher named uh, in Korea, we in Korean Zen we say Unmun, uh, Yunmen in China, and I can't pronounce the Japanese one, Unmun, yeah. So, so this is a story that. Uh, This teacher tells about teaching the art of gardening to the empress of Japan. In the story, it's the king, but we're going to make it the queen. And after three years of teaching her, he said, get ready because now I'm going to come and see your garden and I'm going to see what you've learned after all these years of study with me. So the queen had prepared the garden and she was waiting with great um, eagerness for that special day. And she, uh, she rejoiced that the day had finally come. And for those three years that she was studying with uh, Unmun, she had employed a thousand gardeners to come and make everything perfect, to implement All the lessons she had learned and just make it perfect and for that whole day and night before the teacher arrived everything was cleaned and everything was put exactly right so there would be absolutely no error no mistake and the master came the Queen was really happy showing the teacher around and it was true there was no possibility of finding any fault with this garden it was completely perfect but as the teacher looked at the garden got more serious more and more serious as he was walked around you know on the tour of seeing all the different parts of the garden and this was not normal because this teacher was actually a very uh, humorous person who laughed and who loved to laugh so to watch the teacher get more and more serious was causing some um trepidation for the queen and as they moved into the garden he even started to look sort of sad and the queen got very nervous and sort of agitated inside and finally you know she just she said know, what's wrong? And inside she was worrying, you know, am I going to fail? Did I overlook something? Um, What did I do wrong? Because clearly the teacher was not not joyful at this. And when she said, I thought you would be happy. I tried to make everything perfect. I thought that you would be happy. Uh, What the teacher said was, well, Everything's perfect in fact, but where are the golden leaves? It's autumn and there are no golden leaves anywhere. And without any dead leaves or leaves fluttering in the wind, hanging on the tree, maybe about to fall, the garden just doesn't look alive. And it looks kind of dead. In fact, this garden looks very artificial. There's no sense of movement of singing in this garden. Now the queen had had all the dead leaves removed, not just raked from the ground, but she had even had every yellow leaf removed from the plants and the trees so that there were just green ones left. That was the idea of perfection because she had never thought of how death is actually part of life. And she had never thought that without that there would be no life. And she had never thought that, yeah, the garden was beautiful, but it looked like a painting. Her teacher was right. So the teacher said, the golden wind is missing. Where is this golden wind? Bring the golden wind. And the teacher took a wooden bucket and went outside the garden gate to where leaves had been piled and gathered buckets of leaves and brought them in and just like threw them around the garden. And then after throwing the leaves on the path, the wind came up and started blowing the leaves here and there. And they made that kind of scrapey rustling sound. And there was noise and there was music and the leaves were kind of dancing in the wind. And the teacher said, now there's life. And the garden is golden again. And I love this story because it reminds me of our practice and how we want everything to be perfect. We want everything to be right. We want to remove the parts of ourselves and our life and our experience that we find objectionable or unacceptable. for any reason and we want to get rid of the messiness of our life and make everything nice and controlled and orderly and and yet that messiness is part of the beauty and i want to tell you a zen koan which is really one of my very favorites if not my total favorite because that's what Unman was referring to when he said, now there is golden wind. When he said, where is the golden wind? Garden is empty of it. And then when everything was brought back in, the leaves began to dance and he said, yes, now the golden wind is here. So that expression golden wind is, uh, is a reference to this koan, which is very simple. It goes like this A student comes and asks, Unmen, 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 asks the teacher, How is it when all the leaves have fallen and the branches are bare? And the teacher says, Body is exposed to the golden wind. I know it's kind of cryptic. What does that mean? If we were practicing Zen together, I would never tell you what it means. You'd have to just go back to your cushion, meditate until your intuition provided you with some understanding, your own innate wisdom. But since in the interests of time and what we're all doing here together, I will unpack it for you. When the student is asking, how is it when all the leaves have fallen and the tree is bare? It's, this is a question about something that a couple of you brought up in our practice meeting. What is it like when we drop all our concepts, all our ideas of how things should be, all the labels and filters and through which we usually see things and all the defenses of our hearts with which we usually protect ourselves. What is it like to sit and allow experience to appear, to disappear, to unfold as it is, without interfering, staying present, moment, 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 breath after breath. What happens when we do this? can we do this is it scary is it dangerous what's it like and the teacher says the body exposed to the golden wind in other words when we let all that go when we take down well this is an east coast reference when we take down the storm windows when we open the window when we let the wind when we let life come in without all our protective barriers and without all the perceptual veils that we usually have, then we can just be very naked, very bare, and we kind of can shiver in that wind. Um, If the wind is cold, we shiver. If the wind is warm, we revel in the caress of the wind against our skin. However it is, we have allowed ourselves to be naked. Now, I'm not talking about literally naked. The first time that I taught my sitting group, uh, my Sunday sitting group online, it was before lots and lots of Dharma offerings were being offered online. Uh, The group that I started in in, um, Los Angeles, the meditation center called Insight LA, and some of you are here from Insight LA, um, we were actually the first center to pivot to online. So we got a large number of people at first and now people are finding their own sanghas and their own places of practice. Uh, but it, there were hundreds of people, uh, there at that meeting, zoom meeting and people weren't, we weren't used to, it was my first time doing the sitting group on zoom. We weren't used to doing this and there was somebody, um, a woman in the bathtub and she had not turned off her camera and she was soaping her arms and she was soaping her legs. And luckily the water actually covered the body part, but, and the moderator saw it eventually, you know, and uh, was alerted to it and turned off the camera. I'm not talking about literally naked. I'm talking about the nakedness of being so simply present with experience of not adding anything on, and not subtracting anything, of just that simplicity of being. It's very intimate to be with experience in this way. It's so intimate that sometimes it can make us feel restless and squirmy, like I'm not used to being this intimate with myself or with experience. Maybe you've had that experience looking into somebody's eyes. I know I have. I practiced at one time. Actually, I still do with a sangha where people just love to look long. It's a very bhakti devotional practice. And people love to look long and close into each other's eyes. And I would get so restless inside. I mean, I wouldn't do anything. I'd just look. But I felt like jumping out of my skin. So that kind of closeness, when we come so close to experience, it's very intimate, and it's very bare. And why is the wind called golden? Why is it called golden? Do you think? Well, you're all muted. You can't really you can't really answer. Um, but I think it's called golden wind because when we can allow ourselves to be present in this very simple, unadorned way, uh, something happens and experience does change and transform what's well, changing all the time anyway, but it becomes lighter and brighter and more joyful. And we can actually deliberately, uh, we can deliberately invite that joy into our hearts and into our practice because it can help us keep going when um, when it feels like a slog and it sometimes does. So I want to share something one other teaching with you before opening up for some discussion or conversation together and this is a teaching. Uh, from Dogen Zenji, the teacher that I shared with you about the backward step, the 13th century Zen master who was a Japanese Zen master who went to China and trained there. And I actually visited that temple where Dogen Zenji uh, trained in China before he came back to Japan, bringing the Dharma back to Japan that he had learned there. There was already Buddhism, but he started a new branch called Soto Zen. And when I visited that temple, there was a room, as there usually is in the Chinese temples, they were, the room is filled with different golden figures of arhats, enlightened beings from the past. And each one of these arhats, there were 18 of them, Express a quality, a noble quality of the heart that we have in our practice. I remember one of them was sitting like this, holding these really, really long eyebrows. He'd uh, hold the eyebrows out like this, and then they break down to the floor. And the understanding is if you never tell a lie, your eyebrows grow. And it's kind of like a reverse Pinocchio, only with the eyebrows, not the nose. And um, if you're not, if you don't know the story of Pinocchio, it's a great story. I recommend it. You can look it up. Um, And one of the Arhats had, uh, the image was he had the hands, or they had their hands plunged into their heart and pulling the chest open. And... Inside where the heart would be, or actually the heart was there, there was a red heart, and inside the heart was a little golden Buddha. And I love that arhat too, because, you know, that's what we're doing. We're opening our hearts, and it sometimes feels like kind of a gory process. It sometimes feels hard, and it can be painful. But when we stay with it, what do we discover? That little... Golden Buddha of truth, of loving awareness, of what makes the wind golden in our lives. So, this is the teaching that I'm going to um, share with you now from Dogen. This is uh, a teaching that has inspired me really, probably all the years of my practice. And um, it's, it's Zen Master Dogen's vow. And it's kind of long, I'm not gonna read all of it to you, but I'm gonna read the part that I think is most inspiring for us here. He says, Buddhas and ancestors, I have referred to this. He said, Buddhas and ancestors of old were as we. In the future, we shall be Buddhas and ancestors. As they extend their compassion freely to us, We are able to realize wisdom and our own truth and let go of that realization. This is key. We understand something and we don't fixate and identify with it. We understand it and we let it go in that flow of awareness that Anantuktan was referring to. A Zen master of the past said, I can't pronounce the name, those unenlightened in past lives will now be enlightened. And you can think of past lives as simply our past. You don't have to go into whether or not you believe in reincarnation or rebirth. Those unenlightened in past lives will now be enlightened. In this life, take care of the body, the fruit of many lives. I'm old enough to have lived many lives, many incarnations within this one. And without the body, this would be impossible. So as Jill is helping us do, take care of the body, the fruit of many lives. Before Buddhas were enlightened, they were the same as we are. Enlightened people of today are exactly the same as the ancients this is the exact transmission so quietly explore the far-reaching effects of this teaching with this kind of understanding paraphrasing a little with this kind of understanding and humility we never fail to receive help deep and unending help from all the buddhas and ancestors and this is the part that is the key for me, revealing before the Buddha, and, if, and just substitute loving awareness for the Buddha, revealing before the Buddha, one's lack of faith and failure to practice dissolves the roots of these unwholesome actions. So this is the role of mindfulness, simply being aware, simply being honest with ourselves, Simply having the humility to acknowledge our shortcomings and mistakes, um, just doing that, the willingness to do that, actually dissolves, um, actually makes it possible to do something different. We might think that if we dislike things, they'd be easier to give up, but actually having some appreciation and awareness and mindfulness, some loving awareness of who and how we are when we're caught in ourselves, makes it a lot easier to let go. This is the pure and simple manifestation of true practice, of the true heart and body of faith, of faith, of trust. And the way that we awaken is again, to take that backward step. And it links to the previous koan because what Dogen said was that, I'm paraphrasing a little, when the self goes forward to meet everything that happens, all phenomena, this is delusion. When we take that backward step and receive what appears in our consciousness, receive, whatever is happening, this is awakening. So these are the words that I want to share with you uh, this afternoon, this evening for some of you, and not even afternoon, or early afternoon for those of you who are in Hawaii. I just want to uh, appreciate you for listening, for your attention, for your interest, and to open up now, if we have, um, yeah, we have some time. We have about 15 minutes for questions or comments or anything you might like to share. Uh, Scott has raised their hand. So, yeah, he- go ahead and thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit